in February of 2016. I will have been here, Ashley and I, and the children will have been here seven years. And uh, a lot has happened in those seven years. And one of the things, you know, you when you're when we were in Texas and we were planning to come here, we were thinking through how would we go about, where would we live, how would we go about church, where would we live, what is it going to look like? But there are certain things you don't plan for or prepare for. You just, when it happens, you just say, all right, Lord, this is what you've dealt um, us. And so when we got here um, in the summer of that year, my brother gave me a phone call uh, and he said his son had died. And I, I, Ashley and I left very early that next morning. We were with them for a few days. And uh, I was wondering what, you know, what, what happened uh, in my own life? Just wondering what, what happened, Lord? What, what was going on there? And soon to find out, understood why, at least in my life, some of that had happened. The Lord was preparing me. I had buried an infant back in 90 some odd year uh, back in Denton, Texas, when I was overseeing a young uh, marriage ministry. And then I went to be a part of the funeral for my brother's son, my nephew. And then when I got back here in September of that year, I got a call uh, from a gentleman that said his son had died. And then every year after that, for four years, we, this church, and thank you to this church, we together because this is not about me this is about us we got to walk with four families on helping them through the confusion and the chaos that comes with losing a child one a year for four years and it's confusing the questions of why are asked it can be chaotic um god loved christians and we're we can be like Job's friends sometimes in the first week, and be, we can be really good at ministering to people. And then what we can do is we can become like Job's friends in the rest of that book, and everybody has an opinion on how you ought to handle the death of your child. <laughs> and, and, and so it can be chaotic. But what I did see through those four years is comfort. That, that God is sovereign. I remember standing right here, uh, saying God is sovereign, looking out at a couple. God is good, and God is enough. And you may be here today, and you've never lost a child, but you may have experienced something similar. Uh, if not, you probably will in your life, because we live in a fallen world. And so we need to know, how do you move through the chaos and the confusion of, of life when, when, when you are dealt something that you didn't ask for, or even if you did and you saw it coming, how do you deal with that? What gets you through? What's going to get you through that darkest day? The answer is in Acts 23. And so today we're in the middle of a series. We're actually towards the end of a series, uh, working through the book of Acts. And uh, we're, we've called it Travels into Remote Nations of the World in Four Parts. And so you see Paul's uh, last uh, section of this book, Paul's travels in four parts. He had his first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, and we're right in the middle of Paul on trial and in prison. And so today we're going to walk through 2230 through the end of 23, and I'm calling this the, the promise of God in a persecuting world. 
And I want to show it to you, an outline of it, how it sits. Like if you open your Bible and you follow it through, there, this is the outline. You see in 2230 through 2310, do you see the confusion of the world? I will point that out to you. The world, there was a mistaken identity. There was a divided community. We'll look at that here in a minute. And then you see the comfort of the Lord right there in the center. One verse. In most Bibles, it's set off as its own paragraph because I think the the editors of the ESV and and they want you to see uh, the, what this verse is. And then you see the chaos of the world. There are those, we'll find out today, there are those who are devoted to the persecution of, of believers. And you'll see in God's humor and sovereign plan, foiled plans. That's how it stands literal, literarily. But let me show it to you in principle, an expository outline in how I'm going to preach this chapter. Um, number one, I'm just going to let you know, life can be confusing. Amen. Life can be confusing. Why does, why does one guy uh, go through life and not, never have any sickness, but then there's another guy who's just got stomach pain? Not, not because of something that he ate, but that's just, why does one man wrestle with that and another man not? Life can be confusing, and life can be chaotic. Uh, look around. Um, look at the government. Look at all the issues in the media. Life can be chaotic. It can seem like it's spinning out of control. But in the midst of that, the Lord is our comfort in the confusion and the chaos. And let me just give you my main point up front so you see it. You're not guessing. In the midst of the confusion and the chaos which life brings, God's people, that's you and I, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, find comfort in God's promises. Where do we find our comfort? We find it in God's promises. Uh, one of the guys that was helping me with the young marriage ministry back in Texas, his name's Paul Polk. He's one of my heroes. He's probably two years older than me, but he is just like wisdom personified. He's, you would see him and you think he's a lean fella and he's young. he looks younger than me. I think he still has hair. Um, but when he speaks, you're like, man, this guy is wise. And at one time, his, his children, um, God has given him uh, special needs children, and, and the first one um, w- had to go to the hospital. I remember he looked right at me. He said, hey, can you go get my Bible? He didn't want uh, his um, phone. He didn't want to play games. He didn't have the app to give him the solution to why has his son emerg- gone into this emergency meeting in the hospital. He said, hey, can you go get me my Bible? Because he was going to hang on to God's promises. And so today you're going to see First, the confusing world we live in, then the, the chaotic world we live in, and then the comfort of God. And I hope it blesses your, your soul as it has blessed mine. Verse 30 of chapter 22. But on the next day, yeah, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, this is the commander of the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. The commander is confused. He, he wants to know. He, he didn't really get what was going on, so he's going to sit Paul down before the council. He wants to find out for sure. What is really going on here? Verse 23, 1. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, these are his fellow brothers. This is what he would talk about in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. These are my kinsmen according to the flesh. His desire was for them to come to know the Lord Jesus. So he says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul had a clear conscience. He would later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 
uh, 1.3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Paul has a clear conscience. Now, what you're going to find out right here, that doesn't mean Paul is perfect. You will see that here. But you will see that he has a clear conscience before God. Uh, apparently, this statement didn't sit well with the high priest. And the high priest in verse 2 of chapter 23, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now you're thinking to yourself, is this how you rise up to high priest in that day as you learn how to command people to give a right jab? I mean, are you the coach here? Hey, slug him. Uh, what, what's going on here? There seems to be confusion. The thought is his, he thought Paul's comment was blasphemous. How could anyone say that in all my life I have a good conscience? Here is the high priest who wrestled with that. If we go outside the scripture and we read some Jewish history, Josephus says of this high priest in particular, um, he was, had a quick temper. And so here Paul appealing to his brothers in the flesh, says that he has a clear conscience, a good conscience, and, and this high priest has him punched in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, so Paul sees the high priest and says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, I assume Paul didn't say it. I mean, he just had been popped on the lip. You ever been popped on the lip and you're just, I'm sure he didn't say, God is going to strike you. I think it was a little bit more of a reaction. Um, and, and here's what happens. When you, re when you read something like this in the Bible, all the commentators just want to come and try to defend Paul. God love them. Um, they just try to protect him. Obviously, Paul has... Paul overreacted. He probably overreacted. He just got hit in the mouth, and he says, God's going to strike you, you little... That's what he was thinking. And if so, if so, Paul's overreaction, you see, this is, this is good for us to see because Paul just said he serves God with a clear conscience, but right here when he's hit, he, he, the overflow of his heart was anger. And that's good for you to see because... You're going to see what Paul does with this, and so we don't get this neurotic legalism like you can never mess up in the Christian life. Then those who stood by Paul said, would you revile God's high priest? You're not supposed to do that. According to Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. In verse 5, Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul knew Exodus 22. Paul had been confused. The, the commander was confused. Paul had been confused. Why didn't Paul know? Again, we, we so quickly try to defend Paul. Why was the high priest in street clothes? Did he not have like the big HP on there? John Stott says it best. It was because of his dim sight. Paul probably couldn't see exactly who it was who said that. But what you need to see and don't miss is this man who served God with a clear conscience, though imperfect, was quick to admit his ignorance, and that's a sign of a humble man. See, the, this is the mighty Apostle Paul is still a mere man. 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, again, we don't, Luke doesn't give us the details, but I mean, were they wearing different jerseys? What, what is this? And so you have the Sadducees who were the conservatives of the day. And you have the Pharisees who weren't as conservative. These held just to the written law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. And so here are these conservative guys say, we just go with Genesis through Deuteronomy. And when Paul saw that, how he perceived it, I don't know. And then there were the Pharisees who, who not only believed in the, 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 the Pentateuch, but they believed in the Old Old Testament. Not only did they believe in the Old Testament, they believed that they needed to protect the Old Testament by coming up with all these laws. When he perceived that there was one part sad, maybe they were on opposite sides of the room. You know, one had a big S and the other had a big P. I don't know. It's like football teams join in. Paul perceives this. He, even in his dim sight, perceives this and he cries out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul sees an inroad for the gospel. He says, hey, I believe in the resurrection. He understands it's going, to, it's going to further separate these two groups. It's as if I were standing one day before the house, right? And I said, folks, I'm a, I believe in this political issue. And then the house just goes divided. But Paul's using this strategically to proclaim the good news. And when he had said this, dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You could just see him across the aisle, just saying certain things back and forth. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. It is to these people in Matthew 22, it's not up there, but just you remember the story. They tried to quiz Jesus, trick him about this woman who was married and then married her brother, the, the man's brother, and on and on for seven years. Uh, seven marriages, whose will she be in the resurrection? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus said, you guys just don't understand the scriptures, even the ones you say you hold to. Because way back in Genesis, didn't he say, I am the God of Abraham, present, that he is the God of Abraham who is already dead. That means one day Abraham would rise with God. And so Jesus caught them in their uh, plan and foiled it. And so you see Paul navigating the waters between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there in verse 9, the great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. If he's just, if really what he's talking about is the fulfillment of the resurrection, we find nothing wrong with that. What if a spirit of a, or an angel spoke to him? And so and now you get your opposition actually defending you. It's really interesting to see sometimes when when those who do not believe actually come to your aid. In verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him to the barracks. And so there's this confusing world we live in. There's The commander didn't know who Paul was really, and Paul uh, was confused about the high priest and then, Paul creates some confusion among the Pharisees and Sadducees. But then there's also this chaotic world we live in, and we'll jump right over 11 for now. It's there. We'll come right back to it. 
Now this, in 12 through 35, is not the first plot against Paul, but it's the most detailed. This is amazing. This, this, when you read this, you, you have to smile. You have to laugh out loud at God's sense of humor. When it was day, the Jews had made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more, 13, there were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. Forty plus men fasting, devoted. I'm not going to eat until this man is dead. Let me encourage you in this whole, we've talked about fasting throughout the book of Acts. That is not one reason to fast. Just get that out there. But here are these men who are so devoted, they said, we're not going to eat. They, they wanted to feel uh, the loss in their stomach. They said, we're going to focus until we get this man killed. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath. This is the world's commitment against God's man to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near us. However, so there's their plan. However, there is verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, the son of Paul's sister, here's Paul's nephew, and we don't know exactly how old he is. I'm going to show you. I think he's a young tyke because the, the commander is going to take him by the hand. Right? You don't see grown men taking each other by the hand. He's going to take him by the hand. I think he's a young guy. But I think this is the, here are these men who are devoted to destruction. Here are these men, 40 plus men who have a plan and, and they think they've concocted this plan to kill Paul. And this little boy Here's it. This young man runs off. He happens to be in the right place in the right time, and he informs the right people. It reminds me of Esther, the book of Esther in chapter 2. Look at 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Tham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai happened to be in the right place at the right time. He lets the right people know, and this plan is foiled. And you know in the book of Esther, just a little sermon within a sermon, how God used that. That being in the right place in the right time, reporting it to the right people. Later on in chapter 6, this king couldn't sleep. And so he didn't, at that, in those day and age, he didn't take any NyQuil or anything like that. He got out a history book, the almanac. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out the book of memorable deeds and chronicles, and I'm going to read it so I can maybe fall asleep. And in that, he, re- he, re- he reads this recorded event of Mordecai saving him. And then it's, it's in the middle of the night, and here comes, you know, the, the creepy Haman. It's three in the morning. He just got back from the bars. King comes in, Haman, Haman, uh, what do you think ought to be done for a man who has protected the king? And Haman, so arrogant, so self-centered, said, you know, king, you ought to put your robe on him. Yeah. 
And I think you ought to parade him around the city in your chariot. And what does the king do? Here's, here's Haman setting himself up like, man, this is going to be great. And the king goes, that is a great idea. Why don't you go do that for Mordecai? Such a, did you, that's not funny to you? It's funny to me. That is Hebrew humor. Back to our story. Here is, here is Greek humor. Here are these guys, these men who are devoted themselves to destruction. And a little boy hears about it. He runs and he tells Paul. And Paul called the one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. Now, Paul, you have to understand here, he's already been comforted by the Lord, more than that in a minute, and that comfort didn't make him complacent. Though the Lord had given him a promise, and we'll see that, Paul's taken responsibility. It's like Jesus, who knew who, who he was, could do anything on earth, and yet when they, the people stoned him, he hid. He didn't just stand there and said, I am the God-man, watch this. He hid. John 8, 59, read it for yourself. And so promises do not preclude our responsibility. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand. See, I think it's a young boy, not a, an older teen or a 20-year-old. And going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And so here's a young boy going to be used in God's sovereign plan to protect Paul. God works through little children to accomplish his will. You remember the little child in 2 Kings 5, 2 and 3. Now the Syrians, one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that the Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. And you know the story from there that Naaman goes on, he goes to meet Elijah, and he is healed. And so God, in his sovereignty, even with the little slave girl, is working to comfort his people. Back to Acts 23, and he said, so this is the young boy, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting your consent. And so the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one he wanted to protect this young kid, but you have informed me of, this, of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, now catch this, this is, this is Paul. This is Paul who's probably almost blind. This is Paul whose self-description is frail and weak. This is Paul. And then there are 40 men after him. Here's, here's, you, this should bring a smile to your face. face. Get in your face. Your face in your face. Get ready. This is just Paul. One man. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Okay, that, just take a quick look around. That is six times the number of people in this room. Six times. And just imagine six times the number of the people in this room, all soldiers with guns, and to take 
wee little old me, if I were Paul, in a Humvee, right? That's what it, get that picture in your mind. Here's one man, and you've got 470 people to get him to Felix the governor. Wow. Because a little boy overheard it and told Paul, and Paul said, hey, I've been told I was going to be preaching in Rome, but I'm not going to just rest here. I'm going to get this to who it needs to be get this to I'm going to get this information to who needs to hear it. And he wrote a letter to this effect. This is the Tribune to Felix. Cla- or, yeah, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This is a perfect representation of a New Testament letter. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them, the soldiers and rescued him, and having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. That, my friends, is Acts 22. I found that he was being accused about the questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And it was when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. That, my friends, is Acts 23 up to this point. Now you notice Paul um, has several people working for him. And I I wanted to read to you John Stott's commentary on this because I think it captures it. Luke's great skill as a historian theologian, not to mention the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is clearly seen in these chapters. The future gospel was at stake as powerful forces ranged themselves for and against it. On one hand, the Jewish persecutors were prejudiced and violent. On the other hand, the Romans were open-minded and went out of their way to maintain the standards of the law, justice, and order of which their best leaders were understandably proud. Four times they rescued Paul from death, either by lynching or by murder, taking him into custody until the charges against him would be clarified and, if cogent, presented to the court. Then three times in Luke's narrative, as we've seen, Paul either has been or will be declared innocent. Between these two powers, religious, the Jews, and civil, hostile, the Jews, and friendly, Rome, Jerusalem, and Rome, Paul found himself trapped, unarmed, and totally vulnerable. One cannot help admiring his courage, especially when he stood on the steps of the fortress facing an angry crowd which has just severely manhandled him with no power but the word and the spirit. He was well aware of the Romans, had no case against him. He was convinced that the Jews had no case either. But because of his faith and the faith of his fathers, the gospel was the fulfillment of the law. And above all, he knew the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with whom he would keep his promise. So here's Paul caught in the middle. And so in 31 through 35, the soldiers do what they were supposed to do. According to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. And so Alistair Begg summarized it this way. There was some hostility that Paul encountered. There was this disunity that Paul exposed. 
And if you look now at verse 11, you see the security that he enjoyed. Right in the middle of this confusion and right in the middle of this chaos, Jesus Christ, in verse 11, said the following night, right after this confusion, right before this plot, the Lord stood by him and said, these are the words of Christ to Paul, and they are the words of Christ to us. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. Jesus Christ made a promise to Paul. Paul would later go on and say in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, At my first offense, no one came to stay by, stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Here's Paul who had been struck in the mouth, now rescued from the lion's mouth. And perhaps you're here today and you've never been beaten for your faith. There's probably never been a plot against you. But maybe you, like Paul, when faced with something, overreacted. Or maybe in your life there's been regrets and disappointment, confusion, and chaos. Jesus Christ will show up. He may not and will not give you the exact promise that he gave Paul. It won't be that detailed, but you can rely on the promises in this word. That in the midst of confusion and chaos, God's people were comforted by God's promise. I'm with you. I'm with you. And this idea that Jesus coming to Paul and giving him a promise that he would be with him and stood by him is nothing uh, new to the book of Acts. I'll take you back to Joshua 1, 8, and 9. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. We often end it right there and say, yes, follow the word, and God will guide you. Amen. But don't ever forget verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Do not fear. I would encourage you on your own if you wanted some homework, uh, especially with all the resources we have today on the Internet, do a study of how many times the Lord says in the Bible, do not fear. Do not fear. What was told to Joshua is the same thing Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28. Starting in verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And later on in verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, catch that, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Joshua said, don't let this book of the law depart from your lips. Do it. That's where success will come from. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have an abundance, but what it means is you, in God's eyes, you will be successful. And don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm with you wherever you go. Here, Jesus Christ says, don't be afraid. And he says, go teach them. That means he gave us a command. He gave us a commission. 
go to take his commands, the word, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he left it with a promise. This is the one, not the one reason. Let me not be, I could speak hyperbolically if I wanted to. This is the one reason. This is a reason that I do what I do and will always do this, even if it's not in a pulpit. From this point, from a certain point in my past forward, I am always going to go and make disciples of other men. Always. Why? Because Jesus said he is with me to the end of the age. You can't fail. You can't fail. Go and make disciples of Jesus throughout the entire world. You cannot fail. Now you're saying, well, that's Joshua. That's great. That's Jesus. Fine. But is that, is that true for us today? No problem. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, I love this. Jesus Christ differs every day. Some of you are like, that's not how I memorized it. What version do you have up there? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jeremy Camp said it like this. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Think about that. Oh, that's just Jeremy Camp singing a song. No, think. The same power, it's so catchy when you hear that song. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Let me put that back in Acts 23 language. The same Jesus that told Paul to take courage in the midst of the confusion and the chaos, that same Jesus, as he said in Matthew 28, as it's confirmed in Hebrews 13, 8, is the same Jesus that walks with you. And so Paul, if we go back to that 2 Timothy passage, can say with full confidence, here he is getting ready to die. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That should be enough scripture. But in case it's not, I'll end where I began. What shall we say of these things? God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, and here's the good news. Here is the good news wrapped up in two verses. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the same passage of Scripture where it says God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called by his name. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is the God who justifies. God is for his beloved people, mainly, namely in the cross of Christ. He doesn't have to get he doesn't have to bless me with one more thing here on earth. Not one thing. And he's blessed me with a wife, with healthy children, 
with a wonderful church, with a truck. He doesn't have to give me one more thing because he gave it to me right here. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, I love this. He died. We, we don't leave it there. He, he did go into the grave, but more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Let me just pause on that. Does that not blow you away? People will say, hey man, can you pray for me? And I've, I've, I used to think it was just when I heard someone say this, I was like, oh, that's cute. But I understand why they're doing it. Because if I say yes and I don't write it down, I'll forget. But so now I've moved to, hey, let's just pray about it, even via text. It's a good way to use technology. And so I may pray for you. Sometimes I may forget. But understand, Jesus Christ ha, is interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, the trials that you're going through, shall distress. Maybe some of you are here today and you're just distressed. Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul gives the answer to the Romans. What shall we say to all these things? Who shall charge us? Who is there to condemn? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am neither, I am sure that neither death, I love this picture of Romans 38 and 39, neither death, no, cross it out, nor life, no, cross it out, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth. This, he is adding infinitum, one on top of the other, so you and I don't miss it. Nor anything in all creation, is able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, life is confusing, or can be confusing. Amen? You've been there. I know some of you have been there. And it can be chaotic. But the Lord is our comfort amidst the confusion and chaos. In the midst of the confusion and chaos, you and I, God's people, find comfort in God's promises. The next time you find yourself in a situation, you call me. We'll go get some coffee. We'll open our Bibles. And we'll look at the promises of God together.